So, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Did any of you this week see the uh, New Zealand version of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Anybody see? I'm quite a fan of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I'm quite a fan of the British version. They've now made a New Zealand version. Mike Hosking is presenting it. And in good old Kiwi style, it's not filmed in New Zealand. It's filmed in Melbourne because they couldn't afford to film it in New Zealand. And so they're over in Melbourne and the whole audience is made up of expat Kiwis. So they are, they are Kiwis. But I suppose there's more of them than there are here. So it's a good audience. There they are. You, you kind of think it must cost them a fortune every time they do the phone a friend thing because it's an international call every time. But it was, it was an interesting night, and the first person went away with absolutely nothing. Zero dollars. So that's a great reflection of the Kiwi IQ, isn't it? <laughs> At least they actually offer a million bucks, though, I thought. You know, you, you, you wonder when you hear they're making a New Zealand version, you think it might be like, who wants to win 50 bucks or something? <laughs> yeah. They actually do offer a million, so you can, you can win the prize. But what we've got here in, uh, in this passage, in verse 27, it's kind of like a round of who wants to be a millionaire. Peter's in the chair. He's been doing quite well. He's stuck on a particular question. Jesus turns to his disciples. First of all, he takes a bit of a straw poll to ask who who are people saying that I am. He's got all the answers in. And then he turns to his disciples directly and says, who do you say that I am? And here are the possible answers. A, John the Baptist. B, Elijah. C, one of the prophets. D, the Messiah. And Peter, without hesitating, doesn't need to use any of his lifelines, doesn't even need to ask the audience. He just says, D, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, final answer. This is my version. And Peter says, yes, lock in D. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you've just won a million dollars. No, he doesn't say that at all. He actually tells Peter not to tell anybody, which must have been frustrating for Peter because he nailed it. He gets this one right. I mean, Peter did a lot of stupid things, but he gets this one bang on. You are the Messiah. 
And uh, you need to understand what he, what he means when he says the Messiah. He's not saying uh, you are the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Word of God. You know, he's not a theologian. Peter's understanding wasn't, wasn't there at all. Uh, he's simply saying that word Messiah just means Israel's king. He's saying you're Israel's king. You're the one we've been expecting. You're the coming one. You're the one who's come to deliver us and lead us in this great rebellion. Now we're going to conquer all of our uh, enemies and we're going to set ourselves up, Israel, as a global superpower. This is what Peter's expecting. This is what the disciples are expecting. A great military leader, a great political king to come along. And he says, you are that guy. He names Jesus as the Messiah, which is really the capstone to the first eight chapters of Mark. Right the way through, if you can cast your mind back to the first half of this year, we've been looking at the way Jesus has been bringing in the kingdom. He's been doing these things, healing people and casting out demons and teaching and feeding and walking on water and various things that are signs of the kingdom. He's been showing the way God's kingdom, God's reign is breaking in, even in the midst of the old world. It's coming. And now here is the capstone to all of that with this confession of Peter. You're not just bringing in the kingdom, you're the king. You're the king of the kingdom. And it just brings the whole thing to this incredible climax. Scholars refer to Mark chapter 8 as the hinge of the whole gospel. Because this is where the whole action turns. Everything changes in Mark 8. Everything up till now is, is, is the kingdom, the signs of the kingdom, all of these incredible miracles that have been happening. And then straight away you notice what Jesus does next. As soon as he acknowledges Peter as, as, as having made this incredible confession, he turns around and says, the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and be handed over and be killed and then rise again three days. He starts immediately talking about his suffering. It's really the first time Jesus has brought this up, that he's going to suffer. The idea of a suffering Messiah, it just didn't go together. The, the Messiah is supposed to be this great leader, this incredible conquering king, this political uh, legend. And Jesus is now saying, well, this Messiah, the kind of Messiah I am, is going to be one who suffers. It's going to be one who, who is handed over. Suffering Messiah. It was like an oxymoron. Didn't go together. Like military intelligence or Microsoft Works or something like that. United Methodists. You know, these words that don't go together. And Jesus says, that, that's, that's the kind of Messiah I'm going to be. I'm going to be a suffering Messiah. And Peter takes Jesus aside and, and has this gentle, quiet word with him which I'm sure he felt great about later on. You know, Peter was the one who just gave Jesus a bit of a gentle rebuke. Just a gentle word. Jesus, you might not have read the Bible closely enough, but let me just share a couple of things with you if I could, a little Bible study. The Messiah doesn't suffer. Jesus, this is not a good look. You know, I'm with you for the Messiah part, but don't start talking about the suffering bit. You know, that's not, that's not good PR. That's not going to sell. It's not going to win friends and influence people. Come on, Jesus. We can do better than that. We can do better. And Jesus turns around and gives Peter this stinging rebuke. You know, he says in verse 33, get behind me, Satan. Actually calls Peter Satan. I don't know when the last time you did that to your friend was, but it's not very nice. <laughs> Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I think what's happening here is he can, he, he's, he's heard, Jesus has heard this before. He's heard this line before. You remember when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, took him aside and, and, and gave him these series of temptations, offered him a series of things, and one of the things he offered him was all the kingdoms of the world. He said, all this authority, look at all the kingdoms, look at all the empires, look at all the dynasties. You can be the, the Lord of all this, Jesus. You can be the king. You can be the Messiah you've always wanted to be. And Jesus at that time said, are you out of your mind? I'm going to worship God, serve him only. That's not the kind of Messiah God's called me to be. 
That's not how the story's going to go. And so when he hears this refrain over again from Peter, saying, hey, let's not worry about the suffering thing. Let's just be the Messiah. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the kingdom. Let's talk about the, the one who conquers. Jesus is tracing this back to his temptation with Satan. And he says, that, that, Peter, you've got this so wrong. You think this kingdom is going to be all about conquest. This kingdom is going to be all about might and power and glory and, and victory. And it is, but not in the way you think. Jesus' glory is going to come through his humiliation. His strength is going to come through unbelievable weakness. His power is going to come through defeat. He is going to conquer the empire by being destroyed by the empire. And then Jesus turns to the crowd. And you can imagine him turning to us. He's not talking just to Peter anymore. He turns to all of his disciples and he uses this as a moment to say, listen, if you want to come after me, things are going to be different from here on out. It's not going to be like it was. It's not going to be all about these great signs of the kingdom and conquest and we're, we're doing this incredible thing. It's going to get hard. It's going to be a tough road. If you want to come after me, you, you're going to need to deny yourself. You're going to need to take up your cross. And you're going to need to give up your life, perhaps in a physical sense, but certainly in a sense of surrender. This is how the story is going to go. See, friends, it's not enough just to follow Jesus through the first half of Mark. It's not enough just to follow him through the good times. We've also got to follow him through the second half. We've also got to follow him to the cross. We've also got to be prepared to follow him along the road of suffering, the Via Dolorosa, the road of suffering, the way that gets really, really hard. We've also got to be prepared to hear those words of Jesus and let them penetrate to our hearts as well. There's such a culture today that's grown up uh, among Christians of cheap grace where we, we pray a prayer and we accept Christ, we receive Christ, we ask Jesus into our heart, we do one of those things, you know, however you want to word it, and we remain basically unchanged. We remain relatively unchanged. No real radical reconfiguration of our lives. No real fundamental shift in our values. No 180 degree turning away from something, turning towards something else. It's kind of just an add-on. It's kind of just a label we have. We, we maybe become a slightly better person. We get involved in a church. We have a few decent morals and we go about our lives. And there's a lot of Christians, I think, that are happy there. That's where they want to be. That's what it's going to be about and there's no real changing their minds and, and, and there's nothing that I say that's going to convince them. But I think there's also a group of Christians who are in that category, but they are starting to believe there's something more for them than that. I think there's also a group who are, who are there and it's shallow and it's superficial and it's pretty dry and it's, it, it's just the lowlands. But they've got this hunger for something more. They've got this suspicion that maybe Christianity is about more than what they've experienced so far and how much of God they've really tasted and embraced in their lives and they're actually hungry for something more. And I think that's who these words are addressed to. That's who these words of Jesus are addressed to. He says... If anyone wants to come after me, it's, it's not mandatory. It's up to you. It's an option for every single one of us, if anyone wants to come after me. But if we do, if we really want to be not just Christians, not just believers, not just religious, if we really want to follow this rabbi, we really want to follow this Jesus, he says, let that person deny themselves and let them take up their cross and follow me. I've been reading a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer recently called The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor, German pastor, during the Nazi regime. Eventually got 
executed by the Nazis after being shipped around from prison camp to prison camp. It's an incredible book, The Cost of Discipleship. Most of it's about the Sermon on the Mount, but uh, he has these little gems in there, and one of them is this, this line that stuck with me. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And not just a man, a person. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. You could hear that line, couldn't you, in the song we sung? Bids me come and die. The wonderful cross bids me come and die. That's Bonhoeffer, that line. See, God, when he gets a hold of your life, his intention is not just to do a little bit of remodeling. You know, we think like this, don't we? When I become a Christian, God wants to just maybe paint a few walls on the inside of my house, put up a nice painting over here, a little bit of interior decorating, maybe a little bit of remodeling of the kitchen. But basically, you know, it remains intact. And then over time, you start to realize actually God's intention is to bowl the house down. You know, this is what God's about. This is a C.S. Lewis analogy. God wants to bowl the house down. He's not just doing a bit of interior decorating in your life. His desire for your life and mine is the complete abolition of our old selves. Seriously, the complete destruction of who you used to be, the total recreation of a new person from the inside out, the absolute crucifixion of that old self, that old man, that old woman, when you come to Christ, is dead on the cross, crucified, absolutely laid down and surrendered and done away with. God doesn't just want to make you a bit of a better person. He's not just trying to make you a bit more moral, a bit nicer, a little bit more filled with the Holy Spirit. His desire is to absolutely rebirth you. That's why Nicodemus, Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being born again. It is no less radical than that. And this holiday of self-denial starts with laying our lives down completely, taking our hands off and saying, this is not mine, this is yours, no more of me. No more of this, no more of my ideas and my opinions, no more Reuben, no more, you know, my, all my stuff, me, me, me all the time. I just lay it down. I don't want it anymore. I abandon my old self. This is about you, Jesus. This is your life now. This is your life. This is what it means to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Christ. We, we, we think so quickly that it's about legalistic kind of giving things up, you know? Have you heard those messages on self-denial? We think that Jesus is saying you've got to give this up, deny yourself things, like deny yourself coffee, deny yourself Led Zeppelin, you know, whatever it's going to be. That Jesus doesn't say deny yourself stuff. He says deny yourselves. Deny yourself, the whole thing, the whole person, the whole package. Deny yourself. Self-denial happens at a much deeper level than just giving stuff away and just cutting off stuff in our life. It means actually laying down our rights. Have you ever done this? Laying down your rights. What rights does a follower of Jesus have? None. It means saying, I no longer have the right to do what I want with my life, to just pick my own future and make my own plans. I'm leaving that at the cross. I'm laying down my rights. I no longer have the right to the reputation that I want to have, to the way I want to be seen by other people. I no longer have that right. I give it up, Jesus. I give it up. I take my hands off it. I no longer have the right to my own health. It's not owed to me or anybody. I take my hands off. I'm yours. My body is yours. I no longer have the right just to do what I want, treat people the way I want follow my own passions and desires and predispositions and just float along with the crowd. I no longer have that right. I don't have rights anymore. No longer are we going around saying, I deserve X, Y, Z. I'm owed X, Y, Z. We're saying, I am totally yours, absolutely surrendered. 
totally given up for Jesus. Have you ever reached that place of surrender? It doesn't necessarily happen the day you become a Christian. I think there's a lot of Christians that have not really yet reached that point of self-denial, truly laying their lives down and saying, no more of me, this is all about you. A.W. Tozer said, there's two things you can do with the cross. You can flee it or you can die upon it. And the first option is futile. The second option is the only one that remains for someone that truly wants to follow Jesus, to come and die come and crucify our old self. And out of that dying, there comes a rising. This is the other side of self-denial. It's one thing to get to a point of really laying our lives down, but it's another thing to rise to a new life. And this is what is so central about this whole idea of self-denial. More than anything, it's simply about knowing Christ. There's too many people that surrender everything over to God, and then they spend the rest of their lives just trying to do good stuff just trying to be better, do better, try harder, behave yourself. They're going and they're going and they're going and they, their lives just end in futility. Their lives just become depression and frustration and guilt and shame. And that's not the kind of life that God purchased for you. It's not the kind of life Christ purchased for you. On the cross, more than anything, he wants you to know him. This is the upside of self-denial. We lay our lives down and we step into knowing Christ. I know it sounds cliche, but I'm not talking about knowing about Christ. I'm talking about knowing Him, really knowing Him. Not as a doctrine, not as an idea, not as a concept or a theological uh, thing, but as the person that He is. How well do you know Christ this morning? Really, just think about that right now, where you are. How close are you to Christ this morning? How well do you know Him? How intimately are you walking with him? How much are you walking with him as a friend? Or is your relationship just this formal relationship like you have with your bank? It's kind of, I'm in and I know I'm in and I've got my bank account and I know what the balance is. Or is there more to it than that? How much are you really tasting that intimate communion with Christ this morning? How much are you really tasting that sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit. I know it doesn't sound very macho, guys, but this is at the center of our faith. See, us men struggle with this stuff, you know? We struggle with that, that relational dimension of knowing Christ, but this is so central to what self-denial is all about. Bonhoeffer, again, a, a quote that I've come back to time and time again over the last few weeks. He says, self-denial can only mean knowing Christ and ceasing to know ourselves seeing only him and not the road which is too hard for us. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep close to him. I love those, those lines, just the simplicity of them. It's about knowing Christ and ceasing to know ourself and looking to him and not to the road that's too hard for us. I've had some moments in the past few weeks, honestly, where I have sat back in my office chair and stared up at the patchy ceiling at the hub and just thought, I can't do this. Honestly, I, the road is too long, it's too far, it's too hard, I can't. I wish I could tell you I was a better pastor than that, I wish I was a better person than that, but I'm not. I'm struggling with this stuff just like you. And I had those moments of just feeling like, I can't do this. And these words came back to me, you know, in those moments. Don't focus on the road that's too hard, just look to Christ. Sounds cliche, but press past that. The, the, the cliche factor and just wrap your heart around what's being said here. 
not focusing on the road that's too hard, the mountain that's just too high, that's standing in front of us, but just looking to Christ, fixing your eyes on Him. He's saying, just fix your eyes on me. Don't look at that stuff. Don't look at that stuff. Just look to me. Look to me. Fix your eyes on me. Just know me. If you try and pursue a life of holiness, a life of godliness, outside of this dynamic, ever-deepening, ever-richening relationship with Christ, you are just destined to a life of futility, honestly. But within the context of that kind of relationship, within this rich and deep communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, progress is inevitable. It's, Jesus said it's as natural as a vine bearing fruit if you abide in me, if you're really dwelling in me. We need to invest ourselves in that relationship, not just in doing good stuff, not just in being better people, but in knowing Christ, pressing into Him, knowing Him, really pursuing Him. David said, my soul follows hard after Thee. My soul presses hard after Thee. Those times that we spend in God's presence, just listening, just being with Him. When was the last time just, you just carved out a decent whack of time, not a quick prayer before work, not a quick Bible verse before bed, but a decent whack of time, and you just sat there still in his presence and just listened and just let him speak to you and actually pursued a relationship with God, a friendship, some intimate communion with the God who created you. That's at the heart of self-denial, knowing Christ. All self-denial can say is he leads the way Keep close to Him. I love the simplicity of it. It's not easy, but it's simple. It is simple. And it's out of that relationship that a life formed by Christ emerges. It's out of that, not apart from that. But it does become a daily walk. It does become a daily pursuit. It can't start there. But in the context of that relationship with Christ that's getting deeper and deeper and richer and richer, a life of holiness flows out of that. That's why Luke, when he records the same story about Jesus, he adds the word daily. He says, he puts in Jesus' mouth these words, take up your cross daily and follow me. Just so we get the picture. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a one-time event. And, and, and those who are following Christ know it's not even just daily, is it? It's hour by hour. It's minute by minute. It's moment by moment. It's a constant choice. It's a choice as you're sitting here now. It's a choice through your entire week, moment by moment, choosing Christ and rejecting self. Choosing life and rejecting death. Choosing to deny yourself again. Choosing to lay your rights down again. Choosing to reject those things that you want to do the way you think you should act, the way you think you're entitled to act, and saying, I just deny that, I just reject that, and I choose you, Jesus. And I choose the way of Christ. And every moment, in the smallest of little decisions, the way we think about people, the way we speak, the way we act. It means those of us that struggle with anger, you choose to deny that. And those moments when someone really gets in your face or you are just irritated beyond belief with people, rather than just responding in a way that's snappy and grumpy and harsh, you say, I'm going to deny myself that. I don't have the right to lash out anymore. If I'm truly a follower of Jesus, if I'm following the way of Christ, I'm going to deny myself that right. I'm not going to get angry. I'm going to hold my breath, bite my tongue, clench my fist, whatever I need to do. Walk away if I have to physically get out of this situation, get out of this room. I'll come back and deal with this later, but I'm going to deny. I'm going to lay down this anger, and I'm going to take up gentleness. 
I'm going to take up a spirit of gentleness. That's the cross that maybe you have to bear to be a person of kind words. And not just among Christians. It's not a little Christian ghetto talk. But in business, on the construction site, in the classroom, in the lecture halls, in the playground, with your neighbours. This is the way of Christ that runs completely counter to the way that other people act and think. doesn't matter how much they deserve it. You lay down those rights. You say, it's no longer me living, it's Christ living in me. This is the way of discipleship. But again, don't hear me saying, just do better, do better, try harder and be a better person. It's got to come out of your relationship with Christ. It's got to come out of your walk with Him, your love for Him. As you're falling more and more in love with God all the time, this is going to start to become more natural. It means those of you that are struggling with bitterness and, and resentment in your hearts this morning against someone else, it means you're laying that down. And maybe there's someone that's wronged you and maybe there's someone that's hurt you and maybe they really deserve vengeance. And maybe it's all their fault and none of it's your fault. And maybe they haven't asked for your forgiveness and they're still acting like a punk. It means you lay that down. You lay it down. You say, I don't have the right to just treat people the way they might deserve to be treated. How's God treated me when I deserve judgment and wrath instead of mercy? He showered me with blessings. He showered me with grace. He's forgiven me a million dollars. Can I forgive someone else five bucks? That's the attitude of the disciple. You forgive. You lay it down. Lay down the bitterness. Some of you need to lay that down because it's eating you up like a cancer from the inside out and you need to lay that down. Maybe it's someone else in this room that's hurt you. I don't know, maybe someone else. You need to bring that to the cross. Lay it down. Ask God to take that away and then every morning you forgive them again. You forgive them and you forgive them and you forgive them until the day you die. And you pray for them and you love them. That's the way of the disciple. Not easy, eh? Not easy. Simple, but not easy. This is the road that we're called to walk. It means those of us with a really critical and a judgmental spirit, we lay that down. When we jump to conclusions about other people and we slam them behind their back and we critique things we don't like about them, it means we lay that down today. We're laying it down. It's not the way of Jesus. doesn't matter how bad those things are. doesn't matter how justified our opinions are. We're saying, I'm just not going to go there anymore. I'm just not going to be that. I can stay in the lowlands if I want to, but there's something more for me here, and it's going to take me laying down that and taking up a totally new way of life, taking up the way of love. It means maybe laying down your, your feelings of, of, of obligation, to be healed, for someone else to be healed that you know, and just saying, God, it's your will. It's your sovereign plan that's at work here and not mine. I'm not owed anything, and I lay down the situation before you. I just let it go. I lay it down. There's things that some of you need to bring to the foot of the cross this morning. There's things that some of us need to deny ourselves. Maybe it starts with that whole denial of just our own selfish preoccupation with our own existence, just that tunnel vision. I know I have it. Just you can't see past the end of your nose. You, know, you can't see past your own problems, your own issues, your own stuff. We're all busy, we're all consumed by things. But maybe it's today saying, God, give me eyes to see the problems that other people are going through around me. So it's not all just who can encourage me and who's, who's helping me and, and why aren't my needs being met. But maybe today you're going to become the kind of person that starts saying, who can I encourage? No matter how underappreciated I feel, who can I go to? Who can I encourage? Who can I pat on the back? Who can I love? Who can I uplift? That's the disposition 
of a follower of Jesus. Maybe that's the change that needs to happen in your heart today. Paul says, don't just look to your own interests. Look to those of others. Look out for the interests of others. We die to our own concerns and we rise to a new outlook. 